continuing on in this conversation we've been we started a few weeks ago around the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I want to uh, remind us a couple of things as we're as we're moving forward in this um, is that one is as we're learning about God not to make the mistake of replacing the need to know God with knowledge of God. Uh, one of the things that can happen when I'm when I'm doing a, a series like this is we can get very heady about information. Because I have a piece of information about God, I substitute that for knowing God. And that's actually not the point of this. The, the science we talk about, the details we talk about, it's all good, but it's all designed for one specific purpose, to bring you closer to God. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, our knowledge of God should increase our love of God. Because as we learn about the truth of God, we can love him more for who he is, rather than who we imagine him to be. I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago that... Um, uh, if you want to love God without knowing God, what you end up loving is a God of your own making, not God as he is. So we need to get to know God and love him at the same time. So I want to make sure that we keep our minds straight as we, as we uh, uh, start looking at this. Now last week we talked about the idea of, of uh, a biblical worldview and how important that is to our faith. When you're talking about a consistent biblical worldview, how how much it can it can pull you in to the uh, to the reality of God and living your life as a Christian. All of a sudden, things that were fuzzy suddenly become clear. You know, you don't do this because you know there's no more ambiguity in things because when we have our have a biblical worldview and we realize that the Word of God is also the standard of God, we can have a very clear picture of where our life needs to go. So uh, what I want to do is um, deal with one of the questions that are around the most argued piece of scripture in the Bible. So what we're going to talk about today, the very first piece of scripture I'm going to read for you today is the single most argued piece of scripture both in and out of the church. And I find it amazing that that's actually true. So I'm going to read you two pieces of scripture, and they're around the first question that we dealt with last week on worldview, and that is, where did I come from? And the question is the title of the message today. Am I here by design or by chance? Am I an accident or am I intentional? So the very first piece of scripture we're going to look at is Genesis 1, 1 through 5, and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That right there is the most debated piece of scripture, both in and out of the church. It just causes people to not want to, I, I, I don't want to do with that. Can we just skip to Genesis 12? Because it's easier. Let's just start with Abraham. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the deep, the deep waters and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness, so he called the light day and the darkness night. And evening and morning came, marking the first day. And then if you skip down to Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Then, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, notice there's only two, he created them. 
Did I say that out loud? I did say that out loud. I'm sorry. I was just saying the quiet part out loud. With both of these sections of scripture, the contest, the contested part of it is actually very simple. And these are things that are, these are questions that are being asked both in and out of the church that we need to be able to deal with. And these are the questions that come up. Is the Bible making false claims? Let me put it to you a different way. Is God lying? Is God lying? Is Genesis metaphor? Allegory? Or does it mean what it says? Are we being given a nice story that makes us feel good? Or is God saying, you are the product of my choices? I designed you. I built you. I created the human race out of nothing to mirror me. Those are two very different concepts, aren't they? Design, chance. Now, if you actually read the text, and I've had this debate multiple times, I've talked to Hebrew scholars about this, I've read a, just a ridiculous amount of literature on it, when it comes down to the writing of the Bible, to the language, to the way that Genesis is written, to the way it has been historically observed, there is only one option when you're dealing with this passage. That God is simply saying that mankind, all of creation, all of life is the result of the will and mind of God. No chance involved. All of this is the result of a loving creator. Period. There is no second option. The language does not allow for it. And that bugs people. I was listening to, I can't remember the guy's name. Um, he is the lead Hebrew scholar for uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. And he was doing a class on Genesis. Uh, I got to sit in on recordings of it. Um, and uh, actually was able to submit questions to him. And, and it, was, it was actually kind of neat. And one of the things that he had said in his class is uh, he is not a creationist. He believes in something called the gap theory, but that's a whole other conversation. And he says the reason he does is because it's the only thing that allows him to maintain the integrity of Scripture. Because what he, what he teaches his students is that you cannot get around the language. You cannot get around the truth that the Bible is making a singular claim that God created the universe out of nothing. He simply decided it would exist, spoke it out, done. There's no way around it. It's kind of neat. For all Jewish history and early Christian history, this was not argued. This was not debated at all. It really wasn't debated much in public until around the early 1800s when two people began to gain, two people's theories began to gain in popularity and two, the two most prominent men are these guys, Charles Lyell and Charles Darwin. One of them you know, probably one of them you don't know. Charles Lyell wrote a book called The Principles of Geology. It was published late 1700s, early 1800s. And this was the book that was handed to Charles Darwin by the captain of a boat called the Beagle. See, at that time, Charles Darwin had gone through seminary. Yes, you heard me correctly. Charles Darwin completed seminary because he thought if he could just be a preacher in a country church, he could have enough time to, to explore his science so that he could eventually disprove God. I'm not making that up. 
But he realized that the, that moral dilemma, he couldn't do it. He couldn't live the lie preaching what he thought to be a lie. So he never actually entered the ministry, even though he finished seminary. And he decided he didn't know what to do, so he took a job as a captain's companion. Now, this, those particular times, you may not realize this, but in the early 1800s, there was no cell phone, no internet. Weird, right? Some of you kids are thinking, how did they live? They read these things called books. They're made out of paper. There's words and stuff on them. You turn the pages. It's actually really neat. But so he got hired by this, by the company that was sponsoring the voyage to be basically someone that the captain could talk to because the captain didn't talk with the crew. You didn't, you didn't get together with the crew. They were your crew separate. So the captain needed someone that he could talk to. So Charles Darwin was like, why not? I'm bored. Let's go on a, on a free trip around the world, whatever. So the captain of the boat handed him this book, The Principles of Geology, and while he was reading it, his ideas on evolutionary biology began to take form. His trips to the Galapagos uh, Island, and those of you who are familiar with, with Charles Darwin's history, were on the ship, the Beagle. Most of the, what we would consider modern evolutionary theory came from that trip, and what triggered it was the book the captain gave him. And the funny part is the captain was a Bible-believing Christian. He just thought it was an interesting book. He knew that Darwin was a nerd, so he thought maybe this would keep him interested. What an amazing spiral that took on that journey. So after his, uh, after his, his, his trip on the Beagle, he got back, got to, got to work. People started uh, get, uh, you know, sending him money so he could continue his research. And he wrote this book called The Origin of Species. And the ideas in this book began to take full form around the 1850s. And the book was published. And the idea basically was simple. That over millions and millions of years, they hadn't gotten to billions yet. They didn't think that that was that the universe was that old. They just started with millions. The idea is that over all that time, life began as nothing. Dead, meaningless, lifeless chemicals. And then eventually... They got together by accident, started creating simple life, and then life got more complicated and more complicated and more complicated, and then poof, here we are. So mud to microbiologists, that's essentially kind of how this, how this ended up working out. The thing is, they didn't know what a cell was at the time. They had no idea the intricacies of the human body. They just figured, how hard could it be, Right? You have to remember, at this point in time, they thought fly larvae spontaneously generated. They still believed that if something was rotting on the ground, the it's gross, but it is what it is, the maggots that would come out of it just happened. Until someone realized, oh, flies have to lay those eggs. It's weird, right? It's funny how that works. So their understanding of things were quite primitive, but the underlying goal was the same universally. Charles Lyell was the first person to put forward the idea of uniformitarianism. And the idea within the scientific community was to remove the need for a supernatural God. See, if you could prove that life happened by accident, then there's no reason to invoke a God. And if you don't need to invoke a God, there's no reason to invoke religion. And then these religious people, we can get them out of our lives finally, and they can stop telling us how to live our life. 
Now, you have to remember that a lot of these discoveries and these theories came about after the Dark Ages, where science was, re- was believed to be a type of witchcraft, and if you were caught doing science, you could be jailed or killed. So the scientific community wasn't really happy with the church around this time. So these theories, once everything kind of came out, they started running with these theories because they had freedom to do it. But this was also what you would call the, what is commonly known as the Industrial Revolution. Mankind hit a growth spurt in its capabilities of making very rapid progress in all kinds of areas. It's a very exciting time to be alive. Not that I was there. Bruce was. But, no. <laughs> sorry, you looked at me and it's all it took. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's, what's that old saying? I wasn't at the Last Supper, but I was the busboy, you know. Um, so the idea that mankind was moving forward so fast in their capabilities... It shouldn't surprise anyone that the academic community went in a direction that it did. The academic community has never had time for God. God is a stumbling block to most people in the academic community. And what they were trying to do was desperately remove the influence of religion from academics, from intelligence. Because only superstitious people are religious. And what they did is they grabbed the ideas of Darwin and they've never looked back. The academic community has never looked back from the ideas of Darwin. That's actually changing right now. It's kind of neat. And what has happened over the last 150 years is that the impact, the social impact on biblical Christianity, beginning in Genesis, has dropped off very steadily. You can actually chart it. The influence of the church and society has been steadily, steadily, steadily dropping off. In the 1940s, somewhere, in a, somewhere around 55 to 60% of American Christians were in church every week. Last year, the statistic was 17. 17%. It's insane. No, I'm sorry. It was just before COVID last year. That was silly. Just before COVID, it was 17%. Since COVID, it's actually gotten quite worse. So what has happened is what you found is various forms of compromised Christianity One of the biggest reasons why Christianity has lost a lot of its influence around the world is because scientific naturalism or scientific atheism has become the fastest growing belief system in the world. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The idea that we're nothing, came from nothing, going to nothing, it's just the way it works. And the church has been struggling with what to do with this. So the church began to compromise on things. Oh, sure. Um, Yeah, you can still have evolution, but God did it. What a cop-out. God says he spoke the world into, into existence, but apparently it took him four billion years to get the words out. Talk about a stutter. <laughs> this is crazy. And then what we got is the long march toward modern progressive Christianity. But see, the problem doesn't exist. So what do we do as the church? How do we move forward with the gospel message and the gospel message given to us clearly in the Bible, that same Bible that begins within the beginning God created. How do, how do, you, how do you move forward in confidence with that? Uh, my best advice is really simple. Trust in the word of God. It'll never let you down. One of the things I've found, and I've been, I've been in this argument for a long time. I've been dealing with creation science in, in scripture for like 26, 27 years now. I didn't believe in evolution before I was a Christian. I just didn't know why. Now I do. 
because the Bible is always true. Every time something comes up, every time, and I, I can remember Samantha and I were talk, have, have done this a couple times. They found the missing link. They found the missing link. You always see the missing link found, and then you don't hear anything about it. Evidence of the Big Bang detected. They're like, ooh, we jumped the gun on that one. Shh, maybe no one will notice. Every time there's a discovery that people want to try to disprove the Bible, my answer is always the same. Give it two months. Just give it two months. And the science, they'll continue their experiment. They realize they were wrong. How many of you remember the discovery of the God particle? Okay, maybe I'm the only nerd in here. That and you. Yep, that's fine. You know how long that discovery lasted as answered all the questions of the, of the world? It didn't. It didn't even get off the ground. Because as they went forward, they realized all of the thoughts that they had that they decided to publish preemptively fell apart as soon as it actually got to the experimentation, which honestly I kind of enjoy. So I would say just give it a couple months because what ends up happening inevitably is that science always ends up proving the Bible. Remember, we used to think that the earth was flat. The Bible said the earth was round. Weird. Bible got it right. Man got it wrong. You remember, we used to think that there was a God named Atlas who used to, who held up the earth. What a job. The guy probably had killer abs. But the Bible says that it was a, it, it, it was a sphere hanging in nothing. The, the Bible had it right the entire time. That it was just suspended. We call it space. We call it gravity. The Bible's always been right. And eventually science catches up. I just figured I'd just stick with the Bible. And what's been happening over the last 75 years is unbelievable discovery that has wrecked Darwin. It has absolutely ruined the evolutionary biology community. And the more they move forward, the worse it gets. And I love it. I absolutely love it. One of the things that happened over a few, year, uh, a few years ago is uh, a man named Anthony Flew put out this book. It says, there is a God. Anthony Flew was the poster boy for the atheist community. He's one of the few people that was, uh, he actually passed away a little while ago, but he actually debated C.S. Lewis on faith and religion. Wanted nothing to do with Christianity because science has killed God. Science has proven God does not exist. And then something happened in the 50s that he could not explain. And once the science actually began to come out about it, he had to back off. He repented of his sin against God and became a believer. That discovery was DNA. As soon as the scientific discovery of DNA came out and he began to realize what it meant, he knew, he knew there has to be a God. There has to be a God. And then he became hated among the evolutionary atheist humanist community because he was a turncoat. Turns out he just did what all scientists should do. Follow the research. So the idea of genetics, is, it's, it's what's called information sciences. And in the 1950s, two scientists named Watson and Crick discovered DNA. Deoxyribonucleic acid, in case anyone wants the, the word for um, Scrabble. Honestly, if you have that many pieces in Scrabble, you're cheating. Okay? 
So what happened is they identified, people knew that there had to be something there. There had to be something, there had to be more to the, to the human body than just what we were seeing. So research kept being done and kept being done. They knew something had to be there and these guys wanted to find it and they're credited with finding it. But here's, I want to point something out to you. I do this whenever I get a chance because, um, uh, history is recorded by the people who decide what's going to be in the history books. And a lot of times history that's recorded is not necessarily true. So Watson and Crick are, disco- are credited with discovering DNA. Unfortunately, it was discovered by a woman. A woman scientist in the 1950s making a major discovery was not welcome in the scientific community because it was a girl. Her name was Rosalind Franklin. She's the first person to photograph DNA. She was an x-ray tech. She was also a top scientist in her field, kind of a pioneer. I think she deserves the credit where credit is due. They piggybacked on her work she passed away. They published. That's kind of the way it works. She died in, uh, I think it was uh, 1958. She did, died of cancer. Uh, it's believed that a lot of the, that the reason she ended up with cancer is because they didn't really understand x-ray technology at that particular point in time. So, you know, <laughs> don't stand in front of a nuclear reactor and problems don't happen, you know. It's kind of one of those things. Now, at the time... The scientific community believed, and Watson and Crick are among this group. They believed they would finally shut the religious people up. All these, all these religious people who just cannot wrap their heads around Darwin's supremacy, if they could just shut up, this will finally end the debate, we're monkeys. Problem is, it had exactly the opposite effect. Because what they found out was, the complexity of the human body was more than you could possibly Imagine. It's awesome. But people get stuck on terms. You know, you start getting into, into a bunch of, a bunch of natural science babble. You know, you're talking about natural selection, speciation, adaptation, mutation. I'm sure you guys are just begging right now. You're thinking, please define all these terms in detail. I want to know. No, this is one of the reasons why this, this topic isn't really debated much in the church is because we, you, you need a nerd mind. Apparently, I have one uh, because I've, I've just... My favorite topic in creation is geology. That should tell you everything you need to know. I love rocks. I've got some amazing rocks. I've got some rocks that weren't always, right, always rocks. Right, Cindy? Ask me later. I won't say it from the stage. Unless you know what a carpalite is, but we'll just move right along. I've got another rock that is one of my favorite rocks, and I got it because a couple people weren't aware that they were really breaking international law when they brought it to me, but I'm just going to leave that there. It might be part of the temple from Jerusalem, which you're not allowed to take out of the country, but I have a big piece of it. It's in my office. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I'm not, it's, it, side issues, right? You know, it's fine. To me, geology is fascinating. But when you get into this kind of topic, there's, there's just things that Christians don't want really to know. So I want to I give you a tiny piece of understanding as to how amazing the human body is. And I want you to, un, and all I'm, all I'm trying to help you understand today is how much thought God has put into you. And I hope it helps you understand the glory and the nature of God. That's what I'm hoping this helps you understand. You get people that say things like, evolution is observable in an everyday nature. Christians deny evolutionary processes. They're denying science. I hear, I hear there's a lot. Problem is, both of those statements are absolutely true. 
Listen to me carefully. Evolution is observable in nature. And if a Christian denies that evolution takes place, you are denying science. But here's the thing that we never understand. We don't understand it. There are three definitions for evolution. Three. And only one of them is Darwinism. The other two is the, are the opposite. Out of the three main definitions for Darwinism, only one is actually usable in a Darwinian uh, uh, mindset. The other two are literally the other side of the spectrum. The first one is just regular, regular evolution. It means change over time. How many of you are really happy that from the 1960s to today, clothing has evolved? Or would you rather have me up here in swinging bell-bottom pants? You know, a shirt that's cut down to here with a big gold emblem on it because I'm, you know, mirroring John Travolta. <laughs> don't go there in your mind. Just don't. It's just, just don't. Okay? It's, it's just wrong. Every bit of it's wrong. <laughs> Mental picture. No, stop. Delete. Why did I do that? <laughs> Sometimes you just can't stop yourself. All evolution means is change over time. There is nothing to, no, there's nothing that anyone should worry about that. Things change over time. People change over time. Animals change over time. Styles change over time. Things evolve. You can see that in nature. There's nothing we need to worry about. The second definition is what's called microevolution. This is one that I, I hope, honestly, everyone learns to understand. Microevolution is small changes in living organisms through genetic variation via natural selection, adaptation, speciation, genetic mutation. Yeah, I know. I, we're not going to go there. What that basically means is things change. But things change based on the information that is in their, in their genes, in their DNA. Everything changes. People change. Everything living has DNA in it. Everything that's living has DNA in it. And because you have babies. Things change. How many of you want children that look exactly like you? No. That's wrong. Something messed up. None of your kids look like you, but they have mom's eyes or dad's ears. They have similarities between the two of you because your DNA mixed and you get a new combination of information. That's a good thing. But here's something that's, ne that's never going to happen. You're never going to see a dog give birth to a cat. You're never going to plant a mushroom or squash or something out in your garden. You walk out and there's chickens. You're never going to see that. Dogs always give birth to dogs and cats just become even more useless. Now, cats can be wonder, wonderful depending on how you season them. Um, so, uh, anyway, moving right along. Um, see, here's what's happened. Life is strictly limited to the genetic code of the organism. Humans will always give birth to humans. Always. It took the scientific community, a lot of years to figure out that this is an immutable law. You cannot violate this law. 
It took science a long time to figure it out. But check this out. Genesis 1, 24, 25 says, And God said, Let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind. Weird. Livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And, and that is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. The Bible had it right from the beginning. The Bible, Genesis, understood genetics. God had it right the entire time. There was a very interesting study done a few years ago about dogs. Dogs from around the world were genetically surveyed, and it was determined without any question, all dogs in the world, all breeds of dogs, from the biggest, biggest dog that you can think of to the little, tiniest, most useless chihuahua you've ever seen in your entire life. Oh, I'm sorry. Cute little chihuahua that you've ever seen in your entire life. All of those dogs can be traced genetically back to two wolf-like creatures. Two. Mama, daddy. It was just simply through breeding. The The German shepherd is a bred dog. It was not a natural animal. It was a combination of multiple animals to create something that could be useful for shepherds. It was a genetic hybrid, but it's still a dog. Horses do the same thing. They're all still horses. But here's something interesting. In one set of human genes, I'm not talking about genes, okay? In one set of human DNA, when you have a mom and a dad, each of you have 46 chromosomes. Each of those chromosomes have around 8 billion different bits of information in them. You have 46 of them. When mom and dad get together, 23 come from each parent, and you get a new combination of information, and you have a, and you have a new child. Now, here's a question for you. With one mom and one dad, how much variation could there possibly be in one set of human genes? Hopefully this kind of blows your mind as much as it did mine when I was thinking about how creative God is. Because you think about how it's, it's amazing how many, how many varieties of people. I used to say flavors of people, but that sounds a little cannibalistic. So we're just not going to do that. But I want to, I want to show you something. Is anyone familiar with this number? 10 to the 80th power. And yes, that is 80 zeros after that one. 10 to the 80th power. That is the estimated number of atoms Atoms in the known universe. The, the entire universe. That's roughly how many atoms they believe exist. Now, just to give you an idea, that's a galaxy. This is something called the Hubble. I'm going to show you another picture. It's called the Hubble field. And what that is, it's a tiny pinprick of the night sky that the Hubble telescope got a hold of. I want you to see what's in it. Those are galaxies. I don't know if you figured this out yet, but the universe is a big place. And that's the number of how many atoms fill the universe. How much variation do you think there could possibly be in one set of human genes? 10 to the 2017th power. And in case you're wondering, yes, that is 2017 zeros up there. That's a big number. So if you want to have two kids that are identical, you better get started. 
It's insane how much variation there is in one set of human genes. And here's the cool part. If you have more than one kid, you've created more than one combination. And each of those kids has what we're looking at right here. From one set of parents, you can easily grab the entire world and all of its diversity without any difficulty. No random chance required. Because God is amazing. Now check this out. How many of you know that two dark-skinned parents can have a white, light-skinned baby? I wouldn't want to be in the operating room when that happens. But it can happen. And it has happened. How many of you know that two parents as white as me Okay, and I don't know this, I don't, you may think, oh, you have some color. No, this is red. This is just me being in the sun for 10 seconds. That's all that is. Can have a dark-skinned child. It happens. Here's something even more cool. You can have two dark-skinned or light-skinned parents have a set of twins, one white, one black. Don't believe me? These are called biracial twins. Now, I don't know if you realize that, but that girl has red hair, and no melanin. And her twin sister. Twin sister. Is exactly the opposite. Same parents. Can you imagine. Being in the operating room. With mom and dad. And the nurse going. What just happened? <laughs> And dad going, we're going to talk. (laughs) All this is, is genetic variation. That's all it is. That's why you can have super tall parents have a little tiny kid. And little tiny parents have a super tall kid. Praise the Lord, someone who can read stuff. Right? Now, when kids are born, here's the, here's the part about this particular uh, uh, idea of microevolution that becomes a problem. When kids are born, you have two sets of genes. Those genes are torn in half. You only get half from each parent. And then you recombine that information. Now, let me ask you something. Between the parents and the child, how much information is lost? Half. Half of the genetic information is lost. Now you go and you have another set of kids. How much of that information is lost? Half. This is the opposite of Darwinism. Human life does not go up in information. It goes down. It's called genetic entropy. And eventually, it's what kills us. Because our genes break down. We, ha- we don't hand improvements to the next generation. We hand diseases to the next generation. This is one of the reasons why isolated small towns who marry a little too close to one another have high rates of cancer. It's because the genetic problems between family members are combined and they make it worse. You, wanna, you want the best chance of a healthy child? 
Marry someone outside of your normal racial designation from a galaxy far, far away. Okay, maybe not a galaxy, but that would be cool. Third cousin is just a bad idea. I'm just saying. I'm just, I know I'm in Lewis County, but this is the way it works, right? You know? <laughs> just because they have a different last name doesn't mean they ain't related. <laughs> I think you all understand this. So that's the opposite. So the third definition is this, macroevolution. This is what Darwin put forward. And it's the descent of all life on earth from a single common ancestor via undirected mutation and adaptation. Basically meaning non-living, non-thinking chemicals just became life. Because in reality, the body that you're in is nothing more than a bag of biochemical reactions. It's all it is. And when those biochemical reactions stop, we die. But it's what's in us that makes the difference. We have a spirit and a soul. We were created in the image of God. That image of God is in us. It is not this meat bag we're stuck in. Praise God, I will not be this size in heaven. I will be able to reach the top shelf without a stool. It'd be awesome. In 1980, there was a conference on evolutionary biology held in Chicago. Well, actually, let me, let me, let me, uh, let me do this first. Um, I'm going to do something I've never done in this particular presentation. I'm going to show you a slide with every piece of information, proof, for macroevolution that has ever been published. All the proof that everyone agrees this determines that macroevolution is real. I'm going to show you all of it on this next slide. There is none. None exists. Never has. And the evolutionary biology community knows this. So in 1980, there was a... uh, conference held in Chicago, and the purpose of the conference was to consider the mechanism that underlies, uh, that underlie the origin of species. Now this, what I'm going to show you right here is a clip from the science, uh, from the journal Science, very prestigious magazine, and it says, the central question of the Chicago conference was whether the mechanisms underlying microevolution, which you can see in nature, that we know happens, can be extrapolated, meaning if you leave them alone long enough, They'll explain the phenomena of macroevolution. And this is his conclusion. At the risk of doing violence to the positions of some of the people at the meeting, the answer can be given as a clear no. A clear no. This was 1980. This has been known throughout the scientific community. I have stacks of quotes from people in the scientific community that basically are saying, we know that Darwinism doesn't work, but we don't want to talk about God. There's a list online right now. It's called the Darwin List. It's a list of over a 1,000, actually, I think it's almost 10,000 now, scientists from around the world who've, who've added their names to this list, basically saying Darwinism needs to go and needs to get out of the textbooks. We're teaching kids things that are not real. This is not tenable. This is not good science. It doesn't lead them down good roads. But the organization, National Academy of Science, which is what approves or disapproves things that are in the textbooks, won't even talk to them about it. They have a published opinion that they won't even, even remotely examine anything that does not support Darwinism. It's an official position, even though they know it's not right. And the thing about DNA is it's awesome. It's a language, and it's a language that only uses four letters. Try to write a book only using four letters. 
and then translate that book into four or five other languages. You think about this. Can anyone read that? Any of it? Other than the part where I tell you what country it comes from? We'll focus in on one. We'll focus in on the Hebrew one. And I'll even, I'll even write underneath it what it sounds like. Can anyone read it now? Would you say it sounds like this? Elohim bara Bereshit. Actually, that's not quite correct because Hebrew goes the other direction. If you're reading Hebrew, it's got to be Bereshit bara Elohim. It means in the beginning God created. You see, a language is only a language if you can understand it. Anyone here bilingual? How easy was that? Right? Anyone familiar with this term, lost in translation? Meaning that what you're trying to say in one language doesn't quite work in the other language. This is the difficulty. See, in order to have a language, the language does not only exist, you have to have the understanding of the language. So what has to, what has to come first? The understanding or the language? The words or its meaning? Because if DNA is a language, which it is, that means your body has to be able to read that language. Do you know that your body can read the language of DNA? There are little machines inside your body that know what to do with DNA. And they're literally molecular machines. These are supposed to have been created by accident. And not only was the machine created by accident, it could accidentally read all of your genes. And it accidentally knew what to do with it. It accidentally knew how to clot your blood when you got a cut. It accidentally knew how to keep your heart beating. It accidentally knew how to make an eye. Think about that. This is happening inside of your body trillions of times a day. Trillions of times a day. This is happening flawlessly in your body. All because the DNA that God has rewritten, has, has, has pre-written in your body contains all the information necessary to make this happen. And on one side of the aisle, you have the scientific community saying, no, this is all mindless, directionless, purposeless, random chance. And on the other side, you have the Bible saying, I have created you. Before you, when you're still in your mother's womb, before I even formed you there, I knew you. I spoke you. I know exactly where your life is going. See, when you define the terms, the definition of evolution only makes sense when you take Darwinism out of the picture. And this is why the scientific community doesn't like this. Here's a couple of interesting quotes for you. It says, We should reject as a matter of principle the substitution of intelligent design for the dialogue of chance and necessity. But we concede that there are presently no detailed Darwinian accounts of the evolutionary of, of evolution of any bio, uh, biochemical system, only a variety of wishful speculations. That's a biochemist. This is someone teaching at universities. He's saying plainly, we're teaching you a lie, but we can't teach the other side because the only other side is intelligence. George Wald, this is a Nobel Prize winning, uh, winning uh, biologist, says, when it comes to the origin of life on earth, there is only two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous, listen, listen to this, spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago. 100 years ago, it was disproved. 
But that leads us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible that life arose by chance. These are the people that are making sure that the message is always the same. God cannot be there even though there's no other option. God is the only real viable solution, but we don't want to do it because if we invoke a God, then we have to be submitted to him. And that's the issue. They don't want to be submitted to God, so they will not allow God. But the tide is turning. This is Dr. James Tour, widely regarded as one of the smartest men in the world. This man builds molecular machines for a living. I won't get into the details, but it's very, very cool. You should look into it. He says, I build molecular uh, molecules for a living. I can't begin to tell you how difficult that job is. I stand in awe of God because of what he has done through his creation. Listen to this. Only a rookie who knows nothing about science would say science takes away from faith. If you really study science, it will bring you closer to God. Huge numbers in the scientific community are moving in this direction. Back to God. One man, uh, um, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? Um, Stephen Meyer, he put a book out, The Return of the God Hypothesis, bringing God back into science. It's a very, very dense book. I have it. I've been trying to read it. I can only get through a little bit of it, and I like the stuff. It's, 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 it's written for you know people who are in the field. It's, it's amazing. But the scientific community is doing what it doing the opposite of what it did 150 years ago. It's returning to God as its source of information. And there are wonderful ministries that are out there that I recommend you get involved with. Creation Ministries International is a, uh, an Answers in Genesis, Institute for Creation Research. Uh, these are all organizations that I've been partnered with for a long time. I'm not, let me say that correctly, I'm not part of their ministry, but I partner with them. I'm allowed to use their material. I have their permission, their copyrights and things like that. So it took a little while to get that and I uh, carry their, their material with me when I get a chance to speak on this in other places. They're phenomenal ministries that have worldwide reaches. And these are all staffed by PhD-level research scientists. These aren't just people that are trying to prove something without knowledge. These are people who know who are the, some of the top minds in their field. And they're creationists. At the same time, October 8th and 9th, here will be Dr. Jason Lyle and the Biblical Science Institute. Dr. Lyle has been in the creation ministry for a long time. He is a PhD astronomer. He has made several major discoveries that are that are uh, that are still taught. He's one of the top minds in his field. Phenomenal guy, very very intelligent. Um, travels the world now, helping people understand the majesty of God through the through uh, understanding His creation. It's amazing. He's going to be here. We scheduled him a year out. Okay, a year out. He's going to be here two uh, for two sessions on the eighth in the evening, and then two sessions Sunday morning, two sessions Sunday night. We're getting all the all of the bang for the buck that we can. Um, uh, it's going to be, I think it's just going to be a fantastic time. Please try to make it. Um, I know there's a lot going on that weekend, but please try to make room um, for this because it is, it is important. 